Emily, thanks so much for leading us in worship this morning. It's so important to understand, especially given the topic that we're going to be dealing with over these next few weeks, that God is in control of everything, and uh, he's the one that deserves our attention, not necessarily what's going on. And I'm quite excited about uh, doing this series on, Is This the End?, and that's not intended to scare you because that's what we're living with, right? Right now, there's some fear out there in terms of, you know, maybe the whole thing's going to collapse. But I want to talk about this. First of all, it's interesting. This is the first uh, series of talks I've ever given on the end times. So uh, figures takes quite a while, I think, to prepare for this and to go into it. Uh, and you need to know that when it comes to the end times, I've probably changed how I feel about them and what I would say about them several times. So uh, anyways, and also know that as I talk about the end times a little bit, and I'm going to be talking about it from the perspective of what Jesus said, I may um, not actually follow what you think it's about, and please don't take that as offensive, but I want you to be here for each session that we do in this whole series because it all fits together. And uh, so today is not necessarily just a standalone. Uh, there's a whole perspective on this that I think we need to understand to kind of wrap our heads around what's going on at this particular juncture of time. One of the things that uh, we know about the end times when it comes to Christians, first of all, brings out a whole bunch of weirdness, okay? And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. It also brings out fear and a little bit of dread. Now, you have to understand, you know, uh, so I was raised in a pastor's home, so we had people who came through our church, and they had their charts, and they spoke on the end times and everything. So I've been hearing about this ever since I was a kid, okay? So I, I, have, that, I have that particular perspective on it. And sometimes it was good, but sometimes it wasn't. You know, like I'd come home from school, you know, and I'd be saying, Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, oh no, you know, they're gone and I've been left behind. So you may have experienced that. Some of you probably can't even relate to that. But prophecy has a way of, of kind of getting into some of the very, very strange part of life. And I think you would probably agree with me that there is just way too much weirdness and fear that's out there. Because that's not what God intended by giving us some taste of what is going to happen in the future. So, in this series, I'm going to do my very best to simply bring some clarity, okay? That's my goal, just some clarity to what Jesus taught on this subject. And I think that, you know, it's always good to start with Jesus. I mean, after all, he's the one who's coming back. He's the one that initiated everything that we're going to be talking about. And if, if you can look at this perspective on what Jesus talks about, what the book of Revelation talks about, what Ezekiel and Daniel and, and all these other authors talk about, it's the answer to the old ag agnostic question. If there's a God out there, why doesn't he do something? Well, that's what you see. God shows up in history and God does something about this. Now, and you also need to know this. This is a very important perspective uh, when we talk about the end times, okay? Everything that Jesus and Paul and Peter and Daniel and John wrote about this subject basically was not to create fear was not to, you know, kind of manipulate people into doing things that they really didn't want to do. It was basically to bring hope, to say, you know, wickedness and evil and suffering will not continue on forever until just, you know, staggers into some pit. God is going to bring an end to this, and God is the one who has the final say on everything that exists, on everyone who's ever walked on this planet, not us. It's important to understand that. 
So we're going to limit our teaching in this series. I'm going to touch on some other passages, but we're going to pretty much limit it to what is called um, the Olivet Discourse, which is what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Now you have to understand, this is right after Jesus had risen into Jerusalem. And if you'll remember, you know, he comes down, you know, he's riding, riding down this trail um, and all of a sudden Jerusalem comes, in, comes into view. Spectacular sight. And so he's got all of his disciples with him. Everybody's cheering, you know, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus breaks down crying. Why? It's because he can see a vision of what the future is going to look like. He can see the culmination of what has happened where God called the the Jewish people, the Israelite people, to be a blessing to all nations. And they didn't do that. And now he can see the end. And he has this comment. He says, you know, the whole thing is going to come down. Why? Because you did not recognize the coming of God to you. And that's something we need to take into our hearts. You've got to recognize God coming to us and what he's saying. So Jesus carries on with that. And then the next thing he does, and if you remember, this is found in Matthew chapter 23. Like, if you think, you know, you hate hypocrites, you know, you're going to have to stand in line behind Jesus. Because he goes into it on Matthew 23, and he talks about the religious hypocrisy. How the very people who were supposed to be the spiritual caretakers of the nation of Israel and caretakers of their mission had basically made it about themselves and made it about being better and being bigger than other people. So he's gone on there. So anyways, all the disciples are there with him. He's teaching on the temple steps, talking to the people about, you know, what, you know, God is expecting and everything like that. And looked at the money changers and, you know, the people threw them out of the temple. And then the disciples are basically like they're preoccupied with the temple. And they're saying, man, did you see the stones in this temple? Like, look at this thing. This is gorgeous, you know. This is what Matthew then records. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Listen to this. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. And, you know, Luke tells us that this was Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, you have to understand, they had every right to be impressed. This temple took up something like 40 acres. It was 1,600 feet wide, 900 feet long, deep, nine stories high. And it was covered in white marble. And it had gold on the ceilings and on the parapets of the temple. You know, the ancients tell us that in the, in the light of full day sun, which is quite bright there in the Middle East and so on, said it hurts your eyes to actually look at this place. Stones that they're talking about, they're impressive. People are still impressed with them. There's one stone in the temple base that is 44 feet long and it's 8 feet thick And it's 11 feet wide. So they estimate this thing weighs 300 tons. They don't even know how he put this thing together. So this is what the disciples are looking at and saying, what? you got to be kidding. This thing's massive. It's indestructible. What Jesus then said is the whole thing was going to be torn down. Now what he's dealing with here is that this whole system that everybody had been used to, everybody, you know, that God had instituted with Moses, with the temple and with the sacrifices and with all the the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments that came with all the different, you know, things that they were going to be doing, the whole thing was coming down and Jesus was going to replace it. Now what you have to understand 
is that there are three questions that really form the base of what Jesus says in this passage. The first question is, when he's talking about the destruction of the temple, when's this going to happen? The second question is, what's going to be the sign? Like, how are we going to know? And then the third question is, you know, what is the sign of your return? I want to tell you where I have in the past probably made my mistake. There's been a lot of stuff. I don't know if you remember the whole series Left Behind. It kind of started with Hal Lindsey's book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you may remember some of that. And so what that does, what that tends to do anyways, is it kind of balls up everything that Jesus says here, and it kind of sends it by Canada Post out to the end of all time. So that's kind of the, you know, so what he is saying here in 30 AD, it means, you know, he's talking about some place out there in the 2000 and something or 3000 and something. It's something in the future, okay? So that's kind of where, you know, kind of the left behind movement and everything like that goes. And that's, honestly, that's where I tended to be. What Jesus is dealing with, though, is these three questions, He's not talking about, you know, sometime in the future, you know, everything's going to happen. Now, if you look at what he's saying in the light of these three questions, it makes a lot more sense. Um, for example, <laughs> there's been all kinds of weird stuff that's gone on, you know, in, this, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the whole context of this. Uh, back in the mid-'80s, a guy by the name of Edgar Wissenant uh, wrote a prophecy book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Take Place in 1988. Now, Anybody here know of somebody in your family or somebody, you know, you're related to or somebody in another city or something that got raptured and was taken up to Jesus back in 1988? I don't. I was here uh, in 1988 and it didn't happen. And I want to be careful how I say this, but Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. And there has been a lot of deception that I think has gone on. You know, when a person prophesies about something and says, God told me basically to tell you that this is what's going to happen. So when they, when they prophesy about something and it doesn't happen, you know what that person is called? They're called a false prophet. And you have to think about this. So why would God tell Edgar Wissanant when Jesus is coming back when he didn't tell Jesus? Because <laughs> Jesus said, the Son of Man doesn't know, the angels don't know, only the Father knows. So it just gives you some clue about some of the stuff that's gone on. What Jesus said to his disciples was clearly intended to help them to prepare for the future, to prepare for what they were going to go through in their lives, and to watch out for things. And he basically said, you know, when all this stuff starts to happen in Jerusalem, starts to happen around the temple, he says, get out. I'm not planning to come and rescue then. Get out of town, go up into the hills, flee, uh, go someplace else. Now, I think what we would sometimes like is we would like some secret insider information where we can kind of look into the book of Revelation and look into Jesus' words as kind of our crystal ball, you know, and then we can figure out when Jesus is coming, you know, so we can plan our finances and our vacation around it. Jesus said that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So, all of these prophecies are not intended to give us, you know, some kind of insight so that we will know and nobody else will. They're intended to give us hope that God is at work and God is going to bring all people to judgment and that God has a way better future for us than you could ever possibly imagine. Now, before we go any further on Jesus' response, let's talk about COVID-19 for just a few minutes, okay? 
for well over a year now, you know, this pandemic has pretty much dominated our lives and pretty much everybody on the planet. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, God didn't cause it. He didn't cause it. God didn't sit down and, you know, in his, you know, planning book, you know, on his iPhone up in heaven and say, you know what, I think I'm going to plan this for 2020, you know, and we're just going to kill off a bunch of people. No, he didn't plan it. It came because we live on a diseased planet. But we do have to look at this and figure out what we need to learn from it. That a virus can shut down money, it can shut down entertainment, it can shut down everything that human beings tend to replace God with, okay? So you just have to understand how vulnerable things are. But what happened is that this kind of opened up the gate for the government to basically have to set some regulations and, and kind of interfere in our lives, you know, and tell us where to go and tell us, you know, you know how we're going to go there and tell us, you know, who we're going to be with and stuff. And what has happened is because of the fear, um, lots of things have gone on in people's minds and there's been some conspiracy theories and some things that have come out of this. So this is kind of my you know, interpretation of Matthew 24. It's talking about the destruction of the temple and the whole Jewish system. Revelation is kind of just talking about the destruction of the Roman Empire, in, in, at least in its initial form. So what has happened with COVID, okay, is we get this constant stream of news that kind of pours into our home. There's death out there. This many people died today. There's sickness. This person is really sick. This person is dying, you know. And then, you know, schools are being closed and they're closing businesses and they're closing, you know, off, you know, all the arenas and stuff. And the hospitals are full, you know, because everybody's on a ventilator and they can't handle it. And the government is confused. They don't know what they're talking about or what they're doing, you know. And then schools are closed. What are you going to do with your kids? And you need to stay at home. And it's like, ah, fear. And it gets pumped into our homes and it creates all kinds of stuff, all kinds of garbage. And here's what you need to understand. The Bible is clear that God is not the author of fear. So if something is creating fear and confusion, you need to understand it's not God. It's not God who is, who is doing this. Now, um, I just want to warn you too. I mean, there's other stuff that's gone up, you know, gotten caught up in this and so on. And that is that when there's, when there's, you know, suspicion, there's kind of this soil, you know, and it's threat and limitations and fear and disruption and uncertainty. And what it tends to grow is let's look for somebody to blame for this. Sometimes the government gets blamed. What we're seeing in our culture is really destructive. It's like, let's blame a person. Let's blame a nation for this. And you need to understand that is just wrong. Because nobody caused this thing. It just is because of the receptive nature of our world to disease and viruses and germs and all this stuff. And I'll tell you, if you get involved in this, you are straying away from God. He has nothing to do with racism or anything like this is looking for somebody to blame. Now, one of the conspiracy theories that's come up out of this, and I'm just going to deal with it because <laughs> I think I need to, okay? And it's basically that if you get the COVID vaccine, it's the mark of the beast. If that's true, I'm in trouble because I got vaccinated about two weeks ago. Now, let me just read the passage, okay, that talks about the mark of the beast because this, I think, will bring some clarity. And this is found in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 to 18. It, speaking about the beast, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of the name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of this beast, 
for it is the number of a man. Now, honestly, this you know, has created all kinds of chaos down through the years. I mean, even in just the last century alone, just craziness. Now, what Jesus said to John and what he wrote in the book of Revelations, they were intended, you have to understand, intended for the original listeners. You can't just bypass all the people who got this letter. You know, it says here, it says that he sent it out to seven churches, okay? This was the, that was the original target of this letter, okay? Now, Jesus is talking to his disciples about words, you know, you and this generation, which means he's talking about them. He's talking about stuff that, for the most part, they're going to face in their lives. John in Revelation identifies his audience, okay? Seven actual churches, so that's who it was being written to. But what you have to understand is this is not crystal ball stuff. This is not, you know, let's look in here, let's dig through the news headlines and stuff, and let's say, ooh, this looks like that, and try to you know, stuff it in there, because that just gets all kinds of weird stuff going on. Now, a lot of prophets, you have to also understand, from, you know, Revelation to Jesus, actually go back to previous prophets, like Daniel and Joel, and so you have to kind of look back. Look at, this is part of an ongoing revelation of God about what is going to happen in history and the fact that he's in charge of it. Now, here's what you'll find interesting. It says here, it says, notice the number. Let the reader notice the number. Now, if you do a little research, what you find out is that the Hebrew literature identified numbers to letters, and the number 666, guess guess what it spells out? Nero. It's a historical person. You've probably heard of him, you know. He tortured and slaughtered Christians, and he was responsible for both Paul's and Peter's execution. Peter was hung upside down, crucified upside down, upside down with his wife. He was responsible for that. This guy was a monster. Like he would send Christians out, you know, with their children wrapped in sheepskins out into the arena to be butchered and captured by the wild animals. He beheaded people. He crucified people. He basically tied Christians to poles, dipped them in tar, and burned them in his gardens. This guy was a monster. And that's what you're finding out in this passage. Now, Do you know that the mark of the beast has been identified with just about everything you can imagine down through history? Let's just look at the last, you know, 100 years, okay? So back in the 20s and the 30s, okay, remember when FDR was president, people identified, you know, the mark of the beast with the social security number. Well, if I don't have a social security number and I'm old, then I can't buy food. I can't do anything, you know. Just think about it in terms of, you know, Canadian culture, the sin number, okay. So you get get all kinds of weirdness out of that. In the 1950s, they started putting out area codes so that phone calls could get into specific areas. So people attached the mark of the beast to area codes. I mean, after all, it's a three-digit number. In the 1970s, it was credit card numbers. I had a uh, J.C. Penney's credit card number was 666, you know. Oh, no, I bought a pair of jeans. Now I've got the mark of the beast. 1980s, they associated it with barcodes. In the 1990s, they associated it with computers. Think about it. WWW, worldwide, you know, thing, you know, so you see it on everything that you send out there. 2000s, the locator chips that they were putting in pets and putting in iPhones. And then, of course, in 2021, we've come up with another one, which is the COVID vaccine. And this, this has no relevance whatsoever to what the Bible says. And when you get into some weirdness like this, that's what it is. It's just weirdness. Now, um, 
I just want to be really blunt and honest here, okay? Okay, am I allowed to do that? You're not going to throw your phones at me or anything like that? When Christians do this, when Christians do this, I'm telling you they embarrass the whole church. Uh, <laughs> I used to, um, I mean, just look at some of the prophecies that they've been made, you know, people have put out there. One prophecy buff, you know, wrote a book, you know, basically saying that there's a giant computer, you know, in Belgium and it's called the Beast. That wasn't even true. Someone else said that, you know, that all the stones for rebuilding the Jewish temple in the, in the next time to come and so on, they're stored in the basements of Walmarts all over the world. That's not true either. Um, you know, basically, you know, I, I remember hearing one prophecy, you know, Buff basically saying that right now, right this very moment, that Russia is raising horses out in a desolate part of the, of the nation of Russia, you know, and they're, they're arming up for Armageddon because they're going to ride horses. It's crazy. You know, when Ronald Reagan was president, <laughs> so his first name has six letters, his last name, Reagan, has six letters, and they found out his his middle name has six letters. Oh no, he's the Antichrist. And it just gets into all kinds of stuff. Years ago, I remember getting a note from somebody, you know, they passed on some internet thing for me, to me, you know, basically saying, you know, that uh, it was letters, you know, that, that we had to send letters to the FCC because Madeline Murray O'Hare is going to cancel Christian broadcasting and everybody needed to write to them. And I thought, you know, I, I think I'm going to call the FCC and find out if this is true or not. You know what they said? That's absolutely not true. <laughs> Every few years, one of those letters goes out, and we get all kinds of letters from crazy Christians, you know, opposing something that's not even on the books. And what happens when we just fall for bait like that? We look stupid. We look like we, you know, we don't know what's going on in the world. Now, how many of you would like to know what the overriding theme is about all that the Bible says about the end times. How many of you think it's something along the lines of be worried, be afraid, be filled with dread because it's going to be really, really bad? I hope not. How many of you think what you need to do is you need to look through all the literature and try to figure out when it's going to happen so you can tell all your friends? Well, that's not there either. How many of you think it says you got to just obsess over the details, like, like look at the details and just study them and study them and study them and come up with theories about what they mean? Well, it doesn't say that either. Here's a few clues that may help you. Many of the references taken from, uh, from, are taken from other Old Testament prophets, and I'm just going to put this up here as kind of a reminder of, of some of the clues that you can look for. So, you need to take a look and see which Old Testament prophets are quoted. For example, Jesus, when he talks about, you know, the, the desolation in the temple, you know, and the abomination that's going to be erected there, you know, Daniel writes about that. And so he's referring back to Daniel. So you have to look and see what that says. You have to look at the context. In this, in this case, Jesus, when he's talking about, you know, the temple and about it going down and the whole system being, you know, closed down and what's going to happen in Jerusalem, this comes right on the tails of him riding into Jerusalem and seeing what's going to happen and crying over Jerusalem because he knew it was going to be the end of a whole system that had been set up. He knew that these people had failed at the mission of getting good news out to all the nations. 
So that's the context. Jesus is talking. Jesus is answering the questions that his disciples have asked. You can't just ignore that when you're looking at this. The third thing you need to understand is the apocalyptic language. You need to read through the book of, book of Revelation. I'm telling you, you know, you read about whores riding on dragons, you know, that have seven heads and ten horns and, and so on. And you have to realize this is language about the end. It's not intended to be taken literally. And if you take it literally, you'll take it off into some really weird place. It's intended to be symbolic language. The fourth thing you need to understand, this is what you see in the book of Revelation especially, it's God's judgment on evil empires. Rome had become an evil empire. Daniel was the one writing about that. He saw, I saw an image of this beast, and he's describing Rome, the Roman Empire. He says, it terrified me. It scared me it was because it was trampling on everything. It was just tearing everything up. It's God's judgment on evil empires. But the overarching theme of what's going on is that we are in a cosmic battle. What you find when you read through the Bible is you find out that Satan rebelled against God. He was apparently one of God's most beautiful angels, and he took other angels with him and so on. And so right now we are in a cosmic battle. Now there's no, there's no you know, it's not like we wonder who's going to win on this or not. It just means that we are caught in a cosmic battle, and for some reason, okay, Satan is after us to get our hearts away from God, to stop loving him, and to basically trash his character, which is what he's been doing. So we're kind of the, the prize in all this stuff, and you just have to remember all this stuff, okay? Now, according to the writing of prophecy, here's the thing I want to know. I want you to know. Ask the question, okay? Are we in the end times? Is this the end? Yes. Okay? And let me explain it. There's the start of history, Adam and Eve. You know, the Bible tells us about how things started off and that God had to destroy everything through a flood and so on. So we have this, this history, and the person who dominates this history is God the Father, who is basically working with Moses and working with everybody else and so on, taking it up to this time. Jesus Christ interrupted history with the cross and from that point on, we have been living in the last days, okay? It's the time of the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes into us. We are the temple that God fills with His Spirit. Now, um, listen to how the prophet Joel describes the last days, or he calls it the day of the Lord. Afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my spirits, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. He's talking about the last days. Now, is that going to happen at the end of time after Jesus? No. This is the prophecy that Peter quoted when the Spirit of God came and, and started the church up. The Spirit of God is poured out, and now we are the, you know, Jesus was the temple who basically where he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and now the Spirit of God comes and fills us. We are part of what Jesus is doing. We are his body. Listen to what, uh, how Paul uh, puts it in a letter to his protege, Timothy. Listen to this. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Oh, my word, terrible times, okay? Listen to what he says. People, people will be lovers, sorry about that. People will be lovers of themselves. We live in a selfie generation. Check people's phones, how many, find out how many pictures they have of other people on their phones. Selfie world, okay? Lovers of money, wow. Gold dominates, money dominates. Boastful, proud, abusive, 
<laughs> Boy, does that describe us or not? Just, you know, look at some of the stuff that's out there and what people say about other people. Disobedient to their parents. Wow, this is the time, you know, when <laughs> most teens rebel against their parents and don't want to hang with them, okay? Ungrateful. Oh, my word. Unholy. Without love. When was the last time your kids went out and played, you know, in the cul-de-sac or the street where you live, you know, and the rule was basically, you know, treat other people like you would want to be treated? No, it's, it's the survival of the fittest, okay, out there. Not lovers without self-control, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We love pleasure, don't we? having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then he says this, have nothing to do with such people. Oh, my word. He's talking to people back in this would have been probably 60 A.D. That's what people were like back then. These were the last days. They'd already started. And that's the point, you know, that's what you see in the prophets of the Old Testament. They talked about the last days as when God would send his anointed king, Jesus the Christ, and he was going to come and he was going to intervene in history and inaugurate his kingdom and build his kingdom. Now, when Jesus was asked about this right before he was executed, he said, my kingdom is not, you know, made up of thrones and castles and, you know, and all this stuff. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. He said his kingdom was a kingdom of people's hearts and people's lives. And he wanted people who were part of his kingdom to go out and, and talk about the good news and be good news wherever they went and spread it. Now, what nobody expected at this juncture, Paul talks about this, and we'll maybe talk about it later on, as a mystery. And he talks about this, I think, uh, in, in Ephesians, and he talks about a lengthy time when the good news is primarily spread among the Gentiles. And you really don't hear too much about what's going on in Judaism. Although, you know, when, when uh, Israel became a nation again in, in 1947, there, something, something happened there. So we don't know exactly what that is. But this threw everybody off. And especially threw the Pharisees off, you know. Because they thought, you know, well, he's going to come. He's going to set up a physical kingdom, you know. And we're probably going to be leaders in it because we're leaders now and, and so on. And he will, you know, rule the world and he'll take down the Romans and do all that now. Now, he was going to take down the Romans. But what he used to take down the Roman Empire was the blood of his people who spilled their blood at the hands of the Romans. Now, that's what we see, and I, and I just want to kind of explain it if I can. It's not a very good drawing, but hey, you know me. My art is always amazing. So let's say this is not you know, intended to be a megaphone. This is like binoculars, okay? And the prophets were looking out into the future. And many times what they looked at, it, it appeared like, okay, if you've ever been in the mountains, you look at them and one's you know, dark blue, one's a little bit lighter blue, one's a little bit lighter blue, and so on. And the peaks look like they're you know, just maybe, you know, I don't know, 100 feet apart. You actually get out there, and they're like 100 miles apart, or sometimes more than that. And that's what you see. You see the Roman Empire, that's what Daniel saw. And then you see the Messiah coming, that they talked about that, that he was going to come, and so on. That's what Daniel talked about, specifically, pretty much when he was going to come. And then you see the end of everything, and there's like 2,000 years at least between those two peaks. 
And so that's many times how things happen. Sometimes what happened is uh, there would be a prophecy fulfilled, and then it would be fulfilled again. It was like a two-pronged thing. For example, you know, when Daniel talks about you know, the, the abomination of desolation in the temple, well, that happened back with Antiochus IV. We're going to be talking about this next week. But it happened with Antiochus IV back in the, in the 160s, okay, when he came in and defiled the temple. And it also happened when the Romans came in and basically crushed Judaism and took over the temple. Now, with that foundation, let's read on about what Jesus said in answer to his disciples' question. Listen to what he said. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And that's happened. All kinds of people down through history have come along and said, you need to follow me, you know, because I'm the representative of Jesus now, you know, and I'm the new Messiah. I came along and, you know, Joseph Smith did this and Charles Taze Russell did this and Muhammad did this and so on. I'm, I'm kind of the new version of the Messiah, claiming I'm the Messiah and deceive many. And that's true. Millions and millions and millions of people have been deceived. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's certainly happened, right? And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. That's happened. My word, you know, the earthquake and, and, the, uh, and the tsunami that happened just back in, in about 2000. All these things are the beginning, beginning of the birth pains. Now, it's really important to notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that all this stuff that we experience, you know, when we, you know, see like in, in World War II, you know, Hitler, people thought he was the Antichrist. And people are saying, oh, no, it's the end times. It's the end times. Well, it's nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He says this stuff is going to happen. And none of this is the sign that the end is here. Now, most of you don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, you're probably too young for that. Um, I was just you know, I don't know, two or three when that happened, actually, a little bit older than that. But I used to have this teacher by the name of Mrs. Shallot, and she loved to talk about a nuclear holocaust. And we were, you know, like we were in the middle of a Cold War, you know, and, and we're thinking somebody's going to, you know, use, press the wrong button and the whole thing's going to end, you know. And so I thought, you know, well, this probably is going to be the end. And it's like Jesus said, nah, that's history as usual. There's going to be all kinds of saber-rattling and threats and all this stuff. So don't be misled. Don't get fooled. Don't be deceived. Don't run around thinking, oh, no, the sky is falling. Then Jesus moves on to a specific warning for them. And he's answering their question here. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Notice he's not talking about, you know, people in the end times. He's saying, no, you. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And that's exactly what happened. When Paul came in and he started persecuting the Christians, he basically tried to get them to turn against Jesus and turn against their family and turn them in, okay? And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. That happened, you know, in the, in the first century. Paul had to deal with this in dealing with the Corinthians. He says, you got these super apostles, and they're coming in. He says, and they're wrong. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, okay? But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. Now, Jesus, at the beginning, had told his disciples, told people, he says, it's going to be dangerous to follow me. He said, it could be lethal. It could be bad for your health. 
And that fear would sometimes get the better part of family members. And they're thinking, well, I'd rather, you know, turn somebody in than get turned in, you know. And they would, the families would be ripped apart. We look at the book of Acts, which takes you up to about 60 A.D. You can see exactly what Jesus is talking about. He said, you know, that they all got hauled in before the Sanhedrin. And then they got beaten. In other words, they get scourged, just like Jesus, where they had their backs laid open, okay? And then, you know, they got threatened. Stephen got stoned. And then James gets executed. And then Saul starts on his rampage until God knocks him off his horse and makes him into a preacher, which is another story. Then Nero comes in to power, and all hell breaks loose. So it was bad for your health to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is trying to tell people, and he's right this, 30 AD, he says, it's going to be tough to follow me. It doesn't look bad now, but it's going to look bad then. But the good news is, Jesus goes on to say, the mission is going to get accomplished. The good news is going to get preached out in the world. And you think about this, a band of 120 people, you know, all persecuted, hated, and stuff like this, that they would actually reach out to all the nations seems absurd. But by 320 A.D., the Roman Empire had actually succumbed to following Jesus Christ. But there was a cost. Paul spread the good news of Jesus all around the Mediterranean rim. And then back, and then I think it was somewhere between 63 and 66 A.D., he had to put his head on a chopping block, and he got it lopped off. Other disciples, they spread the good news to India, and they spread it to Syria, and Ethiopia, and Egypt, and Arabia, and Armenia. I mean, they spread the good news. It even went up into some of the base areas of Russia. But they paid with their lives, every single one of them, except for John. And then Jesus continues with this. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, let the reader understand. In other words, look back to what Daniel was saying. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the, on the housetop go to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath for there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will follow. Now, there are some Bible teachers and authors who think that this whole thing is about the future. You know, that at the end, the temple will have to be rebuilt, and then it'll have to be torn down. And then the persecution that, you know, is described in the book of Revelation, this will be the great tribulation, and God will have to step in and shorten that and, and rescue the church and so on. And there are a lot of Christ, great Christians who believe that. I'm not speaking against it. I'm just saying there are good reasons for believing that and so on, and I, I respect those. But here's my question. Is that how Jesus is speaking to people, the people that Jesus is speaking here would have interpreted those words. 
Would they have heard Jesus speak about this and read this and had this read, you know, read in their churches you know, for you know, 100 years and they're watching the whole thing happen there in Jerusalem and say, yeah, 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 well, that's for some future time. That's not for now. I think they probably would have interpreted as it being now. And we're going to talk about that more next week and in the weeks to come. Now, there are some things that I just want to say in closing, okay? And the first is, if something is truly worth living for, then it is also worth dying for. I almost lost my dad to a cause, you know, that he felt was worth dying for. I mean, he knew that when he joined the service, he was laying his life on the line. And you think about it, you know, what, where would the world be if Nazism had prevailed? It was an evil, evil system. And it took a lot of work. It took a, people suffered a lot to bring down the whole superstructure of that whole thing. They still talk about it today about you know, Hitler's secrets and his secret inner people and stuff like this. But I want you to go deeper than that. I want you to think about what's going on in our world. You've seen the pictures of starving children, haven't you? You've seen the pictures of children who die from stupid reasons because they, they don't have clean water to drink. Like you know that there are 9- and 10-year-old kids out there who have to raise their, raise their siblings because their parents have died of AIDS. I mean, you understand. You know, right? The trafficking is at horrible rates in some countries where they're taking little kids and then they just sell them and let them get raped by, by adults. Slavery is more prevalent in our day in some parts of the world than it has been ever since the beginning of time. Some of you are very conscious about how we've wrecked the planet, how we've contaminated the water, how we've contaminated the air, and now it's you know, affecting all of our world system how we've cut down the rainforest, how we've done inestimable damage to just make a quick buck, just because we could. Some of you have lost a sibling. Some of you have lost a parent or friend to an untimely death. Cancer came along and it snatched them out of your lives. Some of you have had friends and they're addicted and you watch them spending their lives every day you know, to alcohol and to drugs and something else and they don't even have an existence. You see that. Some of you have been broken and hated for no reason at all, just because somebody decided to do it. Some of you have been rejected for reasons that are out of your control. Some of you have had people who have come along in your life, and they've used you, and they've thrown you away. And I want you to suggest to you that there is a life that Jesus is bringing that goes beyond that. We are his body in this world. We are called by him to engage and to help and not just sit around and wait for him to come back. We are called to serve him and do what he would be doing. I want to ask you, in the light of all this, like, <laughs> what are you living for? I mean, is it all the really cute pictures that you've taken of yourself on your iPhone? Is that what it is? Is it going to be worth it? Is it worth dying for? Is it the money that you can make, you know, and get your piece of the rock out there and your piece of the gold and build a little empire for yourself? Is it so that you can be King Ken or King whoever in your little world and you can run the show and you can have the power and you can get people to do what you want them to do? 
Is it for, you know, the string of, you know, all your squeezes and stuff, you know, your latest lover and, and the person that you're connecting with and stuff like this? Like, you think that's worth, is that worth living for? Is that worth dying for? Because some people do. Is it sports? Is that the big deal? You know, win the next game, become the most buff person out there on the court? Is it some degree? They're pretty impressive at the time. I mean, I got this one like it's been 30 years ago and like it sits on a shelf in my office. Like, what are you living for? And is it worth dying for? See, because you and I can be put in the position where our lives are basically about, you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the, on the Titanic. You know, we're the, as the thing's going down, we're the orchestra that's playing nearer my God to thee. Like the whole stupid thing is going down. And for some reason, it just never occurs to us to live our lives for something more that is actually going on that Jesus is about. Jesus calls us to live for something that is worth dying for. And that would be my challenge. My challenge is, what are you living for? Do you have the hope that God is going to make all things right and make all things new? And that he's going to heal this broken world. That's worth living for. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your power. Your power to rescue us from evil. Your power, God, to rescue us from disease. Your power to give us hope and comfort when we're distraught and when we don't know what to do, and when we feel frustrated by the circumstances that our lives have brought. Give us the strength. Give us what we need to stay faithful at a difficult time in this world. Thank you for your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.